from Integral Life. Welcome to Everyone is Right. The universe. It's big. No, that's an understatement. It's very big. It can be a bit much, really. There's just a whole lot of it. And it's got a whole lot of stuff in it. Way more nothing than stuff, truth be told, but still. It's more stuff than you can shake a stick at. It's a pretty weird place, too. Like how we can only see 5% of it. What's up with the other 95%? Nobody knows. That's weird. And even the stuff we can see is weird. It grows, it shines, it twists and dances and undulates and sometimes makes other weird stuff like love and helicopters and neckties. And that's just the stuff that we know about. Who knows how weird the other stuff is. Fortunately, not too long ago, a bunch of weird talking monkeys started poking around in an otherwise unremarkable corner of the universe, and over the years those monkeys have come up with all sorts of weird explanations in order to make sense of the whole ordeal. We're here today with one of those talking monkeys, a particularly hairless hominid named Ken Wilbur, who's gathered all of those different explanations of the universe and combined them into one really big explanation of the universe something he calls a theory of everything. But as we just said, the universe is a pretty big place. So let's see just how much everything we can actually fit in there. Listen as Ken Wilbur and Corey DeVos ponder the evolutionary mysteries of the universe, speculating on how abundant life might be in the cosmos, why we haven't met any of our galactic neighbors yet, and what might happen if a UFO landed on the White House lawn. It's a fun conversation, and one that takes its subject matter more seriously than you might expect. Whether you're a true believer of UFO phenomena or an ironclad skeptic, you don't want to miss this fascinating and far-reaching exploration. My name is Corey DeVos. I'm the editor-in-chief here at Integral Life, and I am here, as always, with our very good friend, Ken Wilbur. Ken, how you doing, man? Hey, buddy. So good to see you. So this month, Ken, we're actually celebrating our one-year anniversary of The Ken Show. There it is. Which is pretty freaking cool, I think. Um, you know, I just want to say it's, it's been such a personal high point, you know, for me. Um, I, I just feel so proud and, and privileged to be able to do this show with you month after month. And um, it's, it's really kind of astonishing to me just how much ground we've been able to cover over the last year. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, and a lot of people have come with us, and that's been great. And you've been a perfect, uh, a perfect partner in this. I mean, oh. I really appreciate what you're bringing to it, your intelligence and insight. So it's great. I really appreciate that, Ken. Thank you. And, uh, and interestingly, this week uh, is also the 50-year anniversary of the Apollo moon landing, um, oh, wow. which is th this coming Friday, which was – you know, obviously such a profound milestone uh, for the, really the human species yeah. um, and is one that was felt, you know, really all the way up and down the spiral. Um, so I thought this month, Ken, what we would do is we would devote our anniversary episode to, you know, exploring some of the wonders and mysteries of the universe itself and, you yeah. know, really, I think, uh, explore some of the implications of a truly integral cosmology, um, which basically means we're going to talk about aliens and shit. Yep. Uh, which I think is going to be a lot of crazies <laughs> That's and right. inherent theoretical issues that are involved in something like that. That's right. Yeah, no, it's going to be, it's going to be a fun conversation. I think it'll be a good opportunity for us to sort of stretch our legs a little bit. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, you know, just to begin, um, I just want to say, you know, for me personally, I've been fascinated with space. I mean, ever since I can remember, ever since I was a little boy, um, I was born in 1977, which means that I really grew up in the shadow of the Apollo moon landing. And right. I was only, you know, I think nine years old when the, the Challenger exploded um, over the Atlantic, which was a, right. you know, a, a big formative memory in a lot of ways for me and I think for a lot of my generation. Right. Um, and that said, you know, over the last 40 years, 42 years since I've been alive, the, the discoveries have been just astonishing. I mean, we've got robots collecting rocks on Mars. We've got photographs from, you know, the surface of Venus, which is as close to, you know, sort of the typical biblical conceptions of hell as you can possibly get. 
Um, we have these, you know, we can see these massive storm cells on the surface of Jupiter, which are, you know, each storm is many times larger than the size of our own planet. We have countless pictures of sort of the geometric perfection of Saturn and its rings. And then, you know, recently, just a couple of years ago, we got our very first, what I thought were just jaw dropping images of Pluto, which, you know, for my entire life was just represented by a little fuzzy pixel against the black background. Um, it's, it's, It's pretty amazing what we're doing in our solar system and how we've just sent out you know, these robots and these probes as a way to extend our senses and really, in a lot of ways, beginning to colonize our own solar system. And, you know, now we're talking about doing asteroid mining and uh, thinking about the, you know, the amount of resources that are actually uh, available to us off planet. And it's, I mean, it's incredible, Um, you know, and it's such a, it's such an incredible space for us to um, you know, exercise our imagination and to exercise our, our most sound scientific theories and to, right. and to really just look up and dream. You know, I often say, Ken, we live in this universe that is constantly expanding. Everything is moving away from everything else. And it seems to me that, you know, one of the ways that the universe responds to that is with things like love and community and connection and spirituality and all these forces of the universe that are drawing things together even as things drift apart um so all of this is basically what i wanted to talk with you today ken you have a very well-known theory of everything um but you know as douglas adams points out the universe is a pretty big place so i thought today we would see you know really just how much everything we can actually fit in there um how's that sound to you sounds fine awesome awesome so before we begin ken just sort of (laughs) Set the mood. Um, I want to. I would. I wanted to play a, a really brief uh, three-minute video that I recorded uh, just last week, actually, right. uh, which I think will you know give us a, a sense of just the awesome scope and depth of of what we're really looking at here. And uh, this is something that I call the Hubble Deep Field Meditation. It's really more of a soliloquy than a meditation. But um, let me pull that up real quick. This is the Hubble Deep Field. It's what happened when a group of astronomers decided to point the Hubble Space Telescope at a tiny, apparently empty patch of deep space, about the size of a tennis ball as seen from across a football field, or around 1 24th of a million percent of the total sky, a tiny pinprick in the fabric of the universe. And what we saw became what is possibly the most beautiful and most profound image ever recorded. We poked a hole in the sky and all of this light came pouring through, resulting in this extraordinary image of nearly 3,000 celestial lights. But these lights aren't stars, like we see in the vast majority of Hubble photos. These are entire galaxies and they traveled billions of light years to arrive finally in our retinas. Galaxies. It's one of my favorite words, sort of a one-word poem like firefly or suicide. It sounds so much bigger than the word itself. These are entire galaxies. 3,000 different galaxies as they existed billions of years ago during our own universe's adolescence. How many stars have lived, died, and been born again since these photons first began their journey through the intergalactic void? How many different species and even civilizations have risen and fallen over these billions of years? How many stories have been told, religions invented, wars waged, hearts broken and reignited? So what do you see when you look at this incredible photograph? I'll tell you what I see. I see countless galaxies, each containing hundreds of billions of stars and planets and moons, all made of the same star stuff that I am. Matter and energy that is constantly churning, changing, and evolving always becoming more than it is, always reaching for greater truth, greater beauty, and greater goodness. I see 3,000 pools of light that are becoming ever more enlightened, 
and within that great luminosity, I can sometimes catch the occasional glimpse of my own reflection as spirit in third person, staring back at me across billions of light years of time and space, reminding me that consciousness truly does stretch to the very ends of existence, and that this, too, is arising within me. And then I imagine someone else standing there on the other edge of the universe, looking through a telescope at our own fledgling Milky Way galaxy. So I smile and I wave hello, standing together here on the brink of eternity, separated only by an impossible gulf of time and space. That picture, Ken, it just, it blows me away. You know, I was, um, when I was preparing for the show and putting the questions together, I was just, that, that was the image that I was staring at um, the whole time. And I just found myself, whenever I looked at it, I would just sort of, you know, slide into this, this meditation reflection and just, um, right. You know, we often talk about spirit in first, second, and third person. And even right. though this picture of, the, of these 3000 galaxies, I mean, this is just the outer skin of reality. And yet it, contains multitudes and um that picture just always absolutely blows me away yeah i mean it, it, it one of the things one of the reasons that people get so transfixed when they just look up at the ninth sky um is that it really does tend to resonate whether the person knows it or not but it, <laughs> it tends to resonate with with what's been called big mind mm. because that's really what in a sense that's represented. So certainly there's a lot of material going on out there. So when we look up and see all those galaxies, and I mean, there are hundreds and hundreds of billions of those things, which we'll get to in a moment. We start talking about things like Drake's equation and mm -hmm. the possibility of life on, on other planets. Um, but as, as staggering as that viewpoint is, and, and as absolutely evocative as it is of, of things like spirit or big money, what we're actually seeing in there is still just the exteriors of mm -hmm. those things. So we're seeing the outsides, but every outside, I mean, by definition, every outside has an inside, or you wouldn't know it was an outside. You wouldn't call it outside unless it had an inside. Um, that's my argument for interiors uh, existing, by the way. Um, but, but they do. And so the question about all of those things out there is what do their interiors mm. look like? So that's sort of what we're here to talk about. And that's the crucial issue. So we really are um, looking at, in a sense, what can we count on as being constant throughout the entire universe. Is there really anything that we can say for sure? Now, the tendency, of course, is that a, a physicist or a chemist or some such would say, well, yeah, I mean, the fundamental elements, building blocks in the universe, those are the same and, and, and so on. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that. And I sort of have my own version of it which I'll get to in a minute. But in terms of one of the fundamental things that, um, that I think integral theory um, proposes, certainly that I propose, is, is that um, the only absolutely constant is what's been called the ground of being um, or big mind. Um, the um, um, eternal, infinite ground of everything that's arising, the source and condition of absolutely everything. Now, I mean, that's a big jump for a lot of people, but it comes simply and directly from actual personal experience. Um, and that direct experience is what William James called, pointed out was the correct meaning of data, so, so we have actual data on this, and we have actual personal evidence for this kind of belief. And it's called by any other name, Satori. It's an enlightenment, uh, awakening, a waking up experience. Those experiences are extremely prevalent. Um, constant attainment of those is relatively rare. Mm 
Hmm. But just an everyday spontaneous experience, polls show that about 60% of the population have had some sort of experience of where they were just walking along and all of a sudden, pow, they're one with everything, one with the entire universe. And if we look at those experiences, there's such a, even though there, it's a couple of things are universally agreed upon, one of which is no words, concepts, or ideas capture those experiences. They really are unqualifiable. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you really can't package them up in any sort of philosophical system. Um, and, and there's a whole philosophical system that points out you can't package them up in a philosophical system. It's called the perennial philosophy. What drives the perennial philosophy is the apparent strong similarity. And I'm just going to call them Satori experiences because those are what Zen calls it. Zen's a very well-known school of uh, realization or awakening. And those whole um, waking up experiences, uh, what's similar about them is that they have, uh, there's an enormous degree of certainty about them. So people that have those experiences think that they're really plugging in to something that's unbelievably foundational for the, in, everything they're aware of, the entire universe. And so it really has been given the name of the ground of all being. Uh, and it absolutely does seem to underlie everything that's arising to be absolutely interconnected with every single thing and event that's arising anywhere. And what becomes very difficult for people who have had that kind of experience is to get to a point where they can just fundamentally say, well, that just wasn't real. And certainly people that undergo uh, meditative contemplative practices to have several of those types of realizations, uh, it's virtually impossible for them to not believe that that's some sort of fundamental reality. I mean, it really does just show up with that degree of of astonishing um, profundity. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's it's often the common ordinary world that folks are walking around in is almost always referred to as a dream world in compared to these states, which are called waking up for a reason. You actually do wake up from this unbelievable dream. Mm -hmm. And the dream is of all of this, all of the separate matter, energy, I don't care if it's dark matter or dark energy, it's all a dream. And that's what you get with this ground of being. So what we have to be careful about, if we're going to acknowledge that there are these kinds of Satori experiences in the world and that they are real, we have to be very careful of doing things like just reducing them to a brain experience. So this is now, of course, in in the four quadrants, we acknowledge that any upper left or interior experience has an upper right or brain correlation. Mm -hmm. That's not the point. The point is whether there is this fundamental ground is prior to all of that. Because if you say, well, uh, this Satori, all it's really showing you is it's just a brain physiological explosion. And what happened is there was a big bang and then evolution started. And then we went from atoms, molecules to cells to organisms. And then we went through the whole tree of life. And then around 300,000 years ago, Homo sapiens emerged. And then around maybe 20,000 or 25,000 or 10,000, sometime around there, people started having these kind of spiritual experiences. These became quite pronounced into 3,000, 2,000, 1,000 years BCE. (laughs) So what you don't want to do is say, yes, they were experiencing a ground of being. And they just thought it was the ground of all being. But it really only emerged about 10,000 years ago when people started having this experience. The whole notion of spirit is just a product of human experience. So spirit itself is not the creator or ground of anything. It only popped into being like, oops, <laughs> uh, a couple thousand years ago. Um, and it's just a mess of acetylcholine and dopamine all jammed up and going off in a certain way. 
Um, and there's just constant searching in laboratories today. Uh, one laboratory had come out with what um, they still calling the, the God spot. And I just call it the G spot because it, it seemed to just light the world up. And that's what they thought is that people that were having these unity experiences, one particular part of the brain would light up and they were tracking that. So they said, oh, so that's what these experiences are is when this part of the brain lights up. The point is that these researchers, when people say, oh, I'm actually having an experience of, of ultimate spirit, or I'm having an experience of the ground of all being, or radical unity consciousness, and I go, yeah, well, that, I mean, that spirit isn't really real. I mean, that's just your brain fire. But everything else, I mean, when an apple shows up, certain brain areas light up. I mean, nobody says, well, the apple's not really real. It's just this brain crap going on. Um, but when people actually have this experience of, of a spirit of ground of being, that's not really real. It's not really real because the people that say that are caught in their own scientific materialism, their own form of reductionism, and they really can't see these things, even if it hit them in the G-spot. So, um, so we have to be really careful of that. If, if we assume that people have Satori's, then it's very, very hard to not assume that the actual experiential evidence of those Satori's has some sort of reality. Mm -hmm. So we're gonna have to say they're real, or we're gonna have to say they're just idiotic brain physiology. And if, if that's so, why people like Zen Buddhism uh, would practice and pass that down for 2000 years, because it was such a profound realization. Why people would do that's not made clear at all. Um, and it's even people like, even Alexander, the Harvard neurosurgeon who recently had his whole rational brain decommissioned by certain medical treatments he was undergoing. And then he had this profound mystical oneness experience. And he came out of me, it's like, what the hell was that? That was the realest, most certain thing I've ever, ever experienced. He said he spent a couple of years, you know, looking through all of the material he was aware of. And all that really meant was journals on neurophysiological development. So he, he didn't find any explanation in those. He said he was finally reading a Christian mystic and he found the phrase luminous darkness. And he said, ah, that, that's, that's exactly what I, I was experiencing. And he said, you see, it's the most uh, certain experience he's ever had. It's incapable of him doubting it. That's the data that comes to Satori. So we either buy it or we just do a reductionistic explain it away kind of nonsense. So if that's the case, then we really do have a ground of being. And the important thing about this ground of being is that it really is, well, first of all, technically it's unqualifiable. So somebody like Nagarjuna in Buddhism would come along and look at all the descriptions of these higher states and basically come up with this very, very sophisticated formula that said, wait a minute, all those descriptions don't really work. And, and he said, you may basically can choose any quality you want. Um, consciousness, goodness, love, it doesn't matter. But call that quality X. And Nagarjuna demonstrated that, that this ultimate reality is neither X nor non-X, nor both, nor neither. So so much for your explanations and concepts about the thing. And Garzini's point was simply that people, what's necessary is an actual realization of that ground. And then you can say you know it. Prior to that time, anything you say about it really is just off the mark. Uh, and that's very, very important to keep in mind. It, it, it's literally unqualifiable. It's an actual experiential realization that you must have. Um, or else anything you say about it is really just loopy. So that's part of what we want to remember. And the other thing about that ground is that, and here we're talking metaphorically, um, it really is, words have been used like changeless, boundless, all present, all inclusive, eternal, infinite. But infinity and Eternity mean things that most people don't understand quite correctly. Mm -hmm. um, so infinity, and when you're looking out at all of that space, so that's not infinity 
as these paths of liberation would, would explain it. Infinity is not a really, really big space. It's a point without space. It's spaceless. And so right here in this little point of space, 100% of infinity is present. All of it right here. And it's present right here. And it's present right here. And it's present in here. And one of the odd things about humans is we can plug into this ground and have a realization of these ultimate realities. Infinity is spaceless, not a big, big space. And the same thing is true of eternity. Most people by eternity mean a really, really long period of time. It's not at all. Um, that would be everlastingness or something like that. But eternity is not a long period of time. It's a point without time. So again, 100% of eternity is present in this moment, and it's present in this moment, and present. And that direct experience of that is often called the timeless now, or just pure presence. And that's true. You can get in touch with all of eternity because all of it is present right now in this moment. So even Wittgenstein, I mean, Ludwig Wittgenstein in Tractatus um, has a fantastic quote, and I've used it a lot. Um, if we take eternity to mean not everlasting temporal duration, but a moment without time, then eternity belongs to those who live in the present. That's it. So that's all this ground of being, in a sense, that's all this ground of being is showing us. What the traditions often do is, is distinguish what they call ultimate truth and relative truth. And what Satori shows you is ultimate truth. It's an experience of this ground that's spaceless, therefore infinite, and timeless, therefore eternal, and underlies every single thing and event that comes into existence that we can ever conceive. So when somebody who's had a Satori or two or three looks out and sees all of those stars, it certainly can resonate with them and, and, and also give them a relative sense of the expansiveness of what's going on. But they can also realize, see the same ground of being, that they're one with, this one with all of that. And that is the same ground in all of those galaxies that they've experienced here. Mm -hmm. Or else it doesn't make any sense what they've experienced. Right. And they know what they've experienced. So and it's very, very hard to find some fallibilistic criterion for that kind of ultimate experience. Um, you can get fallibilistic in terms of the practices you use and how clearly you see it and stuff like that. So it does have a scientific edge to it. But when it comes to that pure ultimate ground of being, if you experience it, you just don't have any way of saying that's wrong, that's false. Right. I, I don't believe any of that. And if you think that way, you haven't had a very good story. Um, so that's, that's the only thing in any sort of absolute ultimate sense that I'm willing to say exists way the hell out there or exists in any sort of dark matter we find or any sort of dark energy we find. If this ground of being is anything like it presents itself at this point in space and time to individuals who have it, then it is the same ground of everything that's out there or it doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. So that's number one. Then number two is that would, in a sense, I said the traditions distinguish ultimate truth and relative truth. And again, any term you use for ultimate truth is going to be problematic. So when something like Mahayana Buddhism uses the term emptiness, what they technically mean is, again, it's no term you can use because emptiness is neither X nor non-X nor both nor neither. But you can awaken to that pure emptiness, which is ground of all being. That's the technical meaning of the term emptiness. But then you find things like the Heart Sutra that uh, comes from a tradition that has a very, very profound understanding of this non-dual ground. And you'll see phrases like, that which is emptiness is not other than form. That which is form is not other than emptiness. And there, emptiness is being distinguished from form. And there is a certain meaning to that 
being distinguished. And that is that there, this vast ground of being, which is technically unqualifiable, it does spontaneously give rise to everything that is appearing. So this ground of being, if it makes any sense at all, was prior, it was prior to this moment, it's prior to 10 years ago, it's prior to a thousand years ago, a billion years ago, it's prior to the Big Bang. Because it just doesn't enter the world of form in that sense of emptiness and form being two different things. So this ground, again, it's timeless. So of course it was present at the Big Bang. It, it doesn't enter the stream of time. So. In, it, it's, it's ever present at, at, at all points of, of time, if it's timeless at all. So there, but when that emptiness does give rise to the world of form, then using it in its technical sense, it's not separate or pushed or set apart from that world of form. And that's why emptiness and form are not two. And that's why most of the world's sophisticated spiritual traditions are called non-dual. Because that pure emptiness, pure spirit, pure ground is not other than the whole world of form that it's creating. So that's fine. That's part of that emptiness. But then when it comes to actually the techniques of discovering, and the world of form is a world of, it's a relative world. It's a world of relative truth, ultimate truth, relative truth. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, the problem with that is that the means of detecting truth in the relative realm are different than finding this ultimate truth. I mean, you get to that ultimate truth, but basically, well, you can't get to it, it's ever present. Um, just like, um, i give a quick example, I've said this before, um, but the, um, we talk about the timeless now. And the whole idea about enlightenment being ever present, literally 100% of enlightened mind is present in your awareness right now. At not 90% of it, 100% of it. And that's why the traditions are very clear. You can't technically attain enlightenment anywhere you can attain your lungs or acquire your feet or anything like that. But you can sort of recognize it. You can have it pointed out. So even something like the timeless now, there are a lot of people I spend a lot of time focusing on the, on, the, on the passing present because they're trying to get in touch with the timeless now. But you, you can't get in touch with the timeless now that way because the timeless now includes all of time. So most people that are just sort of stuck in the temporal world, they think that they sort of went through a, a, a past and the past is real and it's out there and then they're coming to the present moment and it's real sort of right now and then there's a future coming up and it's going to be real if it isn't already to some degree. So they're going to just focus on this passing present, and that's, and that's going to work. But you, in terms of the time is now, that's not necessary. I mean, you can think of anything from your past right now and get a really good, clear sense about it, really focus on it well. And notice that whatever that is, it's an image that's arising right now. It's in this timeless now. And when it was real, when it actually happened, it was a now. So you only got a now going on here. And the same with future. You can think about any future idea you want to. That's occurring right now. And when that future actually happens, it'll be right now. The only thing you're ever technically aware of is a now mm. moment. So you don't have to try and get in touch with it, just like you don't have to try to get enlightened. But you do have to recognize it. And for most people, that period of recognition can take a while. So we do have practices that, you know, that can help with that. But those practices that help us awaken to this ever-present, infinite, eternal ground really don't tell us much about the world of form. And that's a problem. So just to give an extreme example so you get the point clearly, the first person that had you know, a real Satori, a couple thousand years ago, however much it actually was. And so they're out walking, you know, in the woods or something, there's this lovely nature and there's a sun in the sky. And at that period in time, they think that the sun goes around the earth, circles the earth. Uh, and they're walking on the earth, and they think the earth is flat. Um, and that's pretty set in their awareness, those relative truths. 
Um, and then they have a Satori. And all of a sudden, that sun that they thought was separate, they're now at directly one with that sun. And that earth that they were walking on, they're absolutely one with that earth. All of these are rising in this oneness that they are. That's ultimate truth. That's that ever-present crown. And they still think the sun circles the earth, and mm -hmm. they still think the earth is flat. It doesn't do anything for them. Literally nothing. So this is not good news for the great traditions. <laughs> but that Satori tells you nothing about atoms or molecules or cells or organisms, tells you nothing about evolution, tells you nothing about those interstellar galaxies, tells you bloody nothing about relative truth. So <laughs> this is hard for people who are practicing you know, these paths of ultimate truth. It's very hard for them to accept. Because when you have a big Satori, you, a lot of people really think they've got everything covered. This, they know ultimate reality. They don't need to know anything else. And that certainly tended to be the tendency of a lot of the early spiritual traditions, which is all you have to do is get this awakening. We don't give a rat's ass what's going on out there. And their culture showed it, by the way, not very pleasant. Um, so we have this whole point about there is this ultimate crown. There are things you can do to recognize it. It's ever present because, and you can realize it anytime because it is ever present. It literally is infinite and eternal. So space isn't timeless. It's present at every point of space, present at every point of time. But as for what's going on in the world of space and time, we don't know. And so that's why humans had to evolve in the world of form. And if they were truly whole, then they were uniting emptiness and form. They weren't just doing form or just doing emptiness. They were truly uniting. They're supposed to because they're non-dual. Emptiness is not other than form. So why aren't you studying the world of form a bit? Um, so that's a long introduction to, I think there are some things in the world of form that would be present out there mm -hmm. as well. And those are the fundamentals of what I have um, tongue-in-cheek called a theory of everything. Um, but everything certainly, well, the fundamentals of the everything framework, in my opinion, will show up out there. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk a bit about that, and I'll try to clarify what I mean. Um, but certainly things that I've called things like the 20 tenets, mm -hmm. these are all written. And these are just things like um, first tenet is reality is not composed of things or events, but whole ones. And that's just one of the most simplest, most fundamental type of generalizations that I think we can make about the universe in general. And it's also, and this is sort of significant for galactic existence, um, it, 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 these are also items that I don't see any manifest world that exists in space and time, we're talking the world of form now, any manifest world in the world of space and time, as ours is now, I don't see how existence can occur unless it's following these things that I call the 20 tenets. And holons is just a simple example. A whole atom is part of a whole molecule. A whole molecule is part of a whole cell. A whole cell is part of a whole organism. And so on and so on and so on. We find the same thing, I mean, just across the board, whole letters are parts of whole words, whole words are parts of whole sentences, whole sentences are parts of whole paragraphs. Um, in human development, one stage of development is a whole that becomes a part of the next whole stage of development. That whole stage becomes a part of the next stage of development. And if you think about it, and this is my point, but it's hard to conceive a universe that doesn't have something like this is let's say you went ahead and had the creation of a universe just right at the beginning. And all you have is, well, I can say strings, but we don't really know exactly what the hell mm -hmm. strings are. So let's just say quarks. 
And if quarks are going to actually do anything different, what are they going to do? Yeah, they can be around for millions and millions and billions and billions of years and just keep crashing into each other and doing all that kind of crap. Um, and you can say, well, they're changing their location, space-time. Yeah, but that's not really interesting. Um, and then all of a sudden, a bunch of quarks come together vertically and make an atom. That's interesting. But an atom is a whole lot. So there's just nowhere for the universe to go. Same thing with atoms. What could they do to do something interesting? Well, they bash around for a you know, million years, billion years, whatever. Uh, it's, it, it's sort of interesting at first, and then it just becomes absolute flatland boring. There's just nothing new happening. And then all of a sudden, a group of atoms hanging out you know, at the local bar, and they pow up to a molecule. That's interesting, but that's a vertical jump, and that's a bigger hole. But at, the atoms are still in the molecule, just like the quarks are still in the atoms. Mm. I mean, these things are transcending and including, transcending and including, transcending and including. If you're going to have some sort of novelty in the universe, and you've just got these single fundamental things, what are you going to do with Why I maintain they're whole lines. And one of the things I also maintain is that because there's not only horizontal movement and change and causality and all of that, but there's also vertical movement and originality and creativity. Then there are at least these four different directions or drives that every holon has. It has agency, which is the tendency to sort of be itself and be autonomous. And every holon has some degree of that. That's why it can exist as a separate whole, a separate thing. But then it's also part of other holons at its same level of development. So it has communion. So it has agency and communion. And you can overdo either one. Um, stereotypically, males tend to overdo agency and just be sort of hyper-autonomous and set apart and all that. And females, stereotypically, tend to overdo communion, get lost in their relationships and so on. Although now we don't just have male and female, we have around 200 other genders. So a lot of other, things, a lot of other choices are available. <laughs> um, but so we, we, and then we've got what I call eros, which is a move up. It's not just an agency or communion on the same level. It's a move to an entirely different level, a higher level of complexity and a higher level of consciousness. And I think Kilar de Chardin was the first to point out what he called the law of complexity and consciousness. And it was simply the more complexity that matter gets in, the more consciousness there is. Mm. So he's just drawing this correlation between left hand and right hand. And that's the whole point, like I say, when we look out at all those galaxies out there, that's their outsides. Mm -hmm. What's their insides? And because there is reason to believe that the same, for example, fundamental particles are still out there, the same electrons, protons, neutrons are generally out there. Well, and the other same fundamentals that go with those would be out there too, like the 20 tenets. I'm sure that the uh, subatomic particles, the whole of a subatomic particle is still coming together into a whole atom, and whole atoms are still coming together into whole molecules, and whole molecules are still coming together into whole cells. I'm sure that's going on out there at least up to molecules. We'll talk about cells uh, in a minute. Um, but I do believe that those 20 tenets are there, and I think those are very important. And I do believe, especially important, that, that there is an arrows. Because what that means, and by the way, even very orthodox, and I've been, I mean, one of the most absolutely boring and almost entirely, I'm sorry, but idiotic criticisms that I've gotten for years has been that my theory doesn't fit modern views of evolution. And I've always said, that's right, because modern views of evolution are catastrophically uh, incomplete. Mm. So why on earth would I be that reductionistic or that scientifically materialistic? And by the way, it was only a matter of time before orthodox scientists started coming along to the view that, wait a minute, this isn't working. And that's happened 
in the past even five years. There's no leading edge scientist in evolutionary theory, for example, that doesn't believe that something like self-organization is also happening with evolution because we can't explain it otherwise. So if someone like Stuart Kaufman would say, well, evolution as we know it's a product of natural selection and self-organization. And those are both two important. And I go, yeah, of course, absolutely. I mean, hello. Um, and David Sloan Wilson, um, who's about as respected an evolutionary biologist you can get, he, as people who followed this channel know, we've done a, I've done a long dialogue with him. Um, and he's, you know, flat out says he's very, very comfortable with, with the integral um, view as, as, as I'm presenting it. Mm -hmm. um, so, so we do have that going on. And so what that arrows in particular means is that as soon as the universe blew into being out of the ground of all being, from the very start, it was winding up. Now, of course, there's also anything that goes up, goes down. Mm -hmm. So there's also a process that particularly in lower hole lines that haven't evolved into more complexity and have sort of more self-organizing hole lines going on. In other words, the pure physical dimension, not even the biological, just the physical. If you take a chunk of the physical universe and cut it off and put it in a box and watch it, it will run down. And it will run down because you're not giving it room to do what it really wants to do. So for a century or so, scientists, physicists on this planet have cut things off, put them in boxes and watch them unwind. Um, if, if you take a glass of water and a drop of ink, and you put a drop of ink in the water, it will always disperse. It will never draw up into a single drop. And that's called the second law of thermodynamics. And there are a lot of scientific materialist physicists that think that law covers everything. And it doesn't. And because if you take the stuff that you put in that physical box and you let it out with the rest of the universe and you come back a billion years later, it'll be a cell or a multicellular organism because that's what matter does. Mm. And that's why pregazine who's Nobel Prize winner, I don't know, 1976, something like that. Um, but it was brilliant because the research he did demonstrated absolutely beyond a shadow of a doubt that even dead insentient matter, if you push it far from equilibrium, it'll escape its turmoil by jumping to a higher level of self-organization. Inherent matter does that inherently. It's built into it. You don't have to do some special funky thing to get it up and running. And so that is astonishing. And so we, of course, we say in integral metathere, we say all four quadrants are operating from the beginning. There's everything has an outside and an inside, and there's an individual and a collective. And particularly they do have those interiors and exteriors, and it's being driven upward. There's an arrows that's active in basically every hold on in existence, including dead and sentient matter. That's how it gets started, because you don't need some special thing to get living cells out of dead molecules. Mm -hmm. They are inherently winding up. Yes, they can wind down. And if you cut something off, take a living thing that's winding up, cut it off, kill it, put it in a box and watch it, it'll wind down. Got it. Understood. And just fuck off. Um, so anyway, so what we've got is this inherent drive. And then the question, which I, I think we're moving into, um, mm -hmm. and I don't know whatever sort of preliminaries you want to uh, say about it. Sure, yeah. But we're talking about the, just the possibility of other life on other planets. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I'll just say uh, just one sentence and, and see how you want to catch this up. Um, Given what I've said about arrows and about holons in general, you can guess that I'm going to say there's an unbelievably strong, almost certain chance that there's something higher going on 
out there. So. Yeah, and that that was my assumption. But um, geez, what a you know, as usual, such a, a blistering introduction, Ken. Thank you. And just to sort of summarize, so you know, let's let's look at sort of the shape of the sandbox that yeah. we're playing in right now, right? So we've got we've got ultimate truths, and then we've got what we might call universal truths, and the ultimate truths yeah, uh, relative truth that is expand is true for all universal space and time yep exactly so on the, on the ultimate side of the street we've got the ground of being on the relative side of the street we've got something like the 20 tenets which produces everything from plant kingdoms to animal kingdoms to nervous systems of increasing complexity in order to interface that ground of being an interface probably isn't the right word but when you're talking about the ground of being there are no right words right um but suffice to say these th these nervous systems are able to have a particular relationship with that ground of being. And one of the things that always fascinates me, Ken, is when, you know, when I listen to you talk and I look at that picture of the deep, the Hubble deep field, it's, it's just my imagination just starts cascading into, okay, so when another nervous system, let's say even like, you know, sort of uh, as evolved as ours, somewhere in that range, yeah. how does it interface the ground of being? How different must that ex and same must that experience be um, just based on the fact that, I mean, we don't even know how, I don't know, horses and dolphins interface the ground of being, let alone, you know, a, a civilization that's a million years more advanced than us, but it's a fascinating question. Um, and it, and it goes to show that everything we know about spirituality, mysticism, these experiences, these ultimate experiences are, are filtered through the human nervous system. And it'll, it would be interesting to have another, you know, another consciousness to sort of compare notes with and, you know, what's the same and what's different. This was excerpted from the full two and a half hour discussion, which you can find on our premium podcast over at integrallife.com.